Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Brian Snow is here for the first part, and then we're going to have Seth Part now on for the second part of this show. Brian is here with me right now. We're going to talk about Imani Bates and his big decision to uh, commit to Michigan State uh, on Monday afternoon. And then Seth's going to come on and we're going to talk about my rookie scale rankings and just kind of everything that goes into that and player evaluation on the NBA front. So, uh, Brian, how you doing, man? I'm good. Just, you know, slight little news day here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, anytime that the number one recruit in high school basketball commits, it's going to be a thing. So but this is a little bit more complicated than your typical number one commitment for a lot of reasons, right? But before we get there, let's just kind of talk about who Imani Bates is and why this matters, right? Uh, Imani Bates is a six foot eight, six foot nine uh, kind of wing, I guess is the way to put him, who is an exceptional elite level scorer for being uh, the last time I saw him, he was 15. He turned 16 in January Uh, for being as young as he is. He is probably the most polished scorer over six foot five that plays the wing that I've ever seen. Uh, Would you kind of concur with that in terms of who he is? Yeah. I mean, he is supremely skilled and like, he's one of the kids, usually when you see these, you know, generational talents, so to speak, it's because, like, they're freakish athletically, whether it's LeBron James, right. Anthony Davis, you know, those guys, it's like Greg Oden at the time. It was like, you just didn't see a seven-footer move like Greg Oden could move. Now, obviously, his body betrayed him, but it was freakish. Um, Amani Bates isn't that. That's not to say he's a bad athlete. I mean, by NBA standards, he'll probably be a, a good athlete, above average to good, but it's his skill level. It's the fact that he can score from all three levels. He can handle, he can... He can pass. He makes others better. He knows how to play. It's just off the charts. And like I've been saying, it's his work ethic. Like the kid had, like they have to slow him down a little bit. He works so hard on his own. And when you have that, it makes such a big difference. So, yeah, and that's an important part of this whole thing. And I think it's why he's been able to develop at this early age and become as polished as he is. I don't want to like pour water on it because I think that he is an exceptional prospect. And like I said, like, I think he's the best, like, you know, six foot five plus wing scorer that I've ever really evaluated. Right. Uh, for his age, that is. But there are some like whenever I see like this kid is the best uh, prospect since uh, Anthony Davis or the best prospect since Kevin Durant, who is often compared to. I often recoil at that a little bit, just based off of what I've seen. I've seen Imani uh, play once, uh, I believe, in an EYBL game, and I've seen him at the Nike Basketball Academy. So I've seen him live for, like, you know, one game at an EYBL, and then I've seen him, you know, play multiple games over two days at Nike Basketball Academy last summer. So you've seen him much more than I have. You were in the Midwest. Uh, I believe you're in Indiana. Imani's up in Ipsiplanti. So you probably have a better evaluation on him than I do right now. But from what I've seen of him, I'm not saying that he is undeserving of being the number one recruit in the country. He certainly is. I am just a little bit worried about where it goes from here because he is like pretty skinny. He has an even wingspan as measured last summer at Nike basketball Academy. And you know, that frame doesn't look incredible. Like he's not the freak show 
frame-wise that Kevin Durant is with like a seven foot five wingspan at six foot eleven, and, and I just wonder how it's gonna how it's gonna all work as he moves up levels in basketball. Where he is now, I think, is totally reasonable. I just worry about how it develops. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, like the odds are he's not going to be as good as Kevin Durant. Like if you're placing right. bet, bets in Vegas, like is a human being going to be as good as Kevin Durant? You should always choose no because you're going to be right 99 <laughs> out of 100 times. Um, but I think what it does, like, with him, he's so talented. Like, he's so skilled. And then he right. does have enough of the physical tools where he's not going to get overwhelmed. Um, I think he's going to get strong enough. I, I He doesn't have the longest arms in the world, but I think part of that's because he's got narrow shoulders. I think his arms actually are fairly long. But I think if you look at mm-hmm. the wingspan, it, he's got narrow shoulders right now. So that gets in the way a little bit. Um, and he, like I said, he's not an elite athlete. But when you combine his work ethic, his intelligence, and his elite skill level, to me, that translates at the highest level. He's, you know, is he going to be, you know, the next great face of the NBA? I don't know. But do I think it's right. a pretty safe bet that he's going to get a max contract? Yes, I do. Because he's going to score yeah. 20 points. He's going to get seven or eight rebounds a game. And he's going to get three to five assists. I mean, I think he can – I think as absurd as that is to say about a 16-year-old, it, it's not that hard to see. So I think he's a definite max contract guy, and it's hard to say that for many kids coming out of high school. It really is. See, yeah, that I actually do agree with you on, um, despite the fact that I feel like as compared to consensus in basketball circles, I'm probably slightly lower on him long term. I totally agree with you on that, though, that I would be surprised if he's not like a 20 point a game scorer in the NBA, just given what we've seen so far and given, you know, what the background is and everything in terms of his work ethic. Uh, I, I do just hope that the hype machine doesn't get, you know, totally overwhelming. You know what I mean? Because, like, we've seen kids just kind of get lost in the hype machine, and it's just concerning, and he doesn't seem like the kind of kid where that would happen because of the work ethic. But when you combine that with the, like, middling, let's call them physical tools to, like, above-average medical uh, physical tools by NBA standards, I, I just worry that, like, um, if he turns into something that is only a max contract player versus a, uh, you know, franchise-altering piece – like a Zion Williamson has turned into over the course of his two years since he graduated high school, it'll be seen as a disappointment. And I just think that that's like a little bit unfair to the kid even, you know? Yeah. And, and that's where it gets tough. I mean, like, you know, people, people look at like some of these guys as disappointments. I'm like, well, he was a six time all-star, you know, like, right. good Lord. Boy. Like that's, if that's a disappointment, sign me up for a few more of those. Um, Where I think the difference with Amani is, is kind of the last guy I remember us talking like this about was Andrew Wiggins. And Andrew Wiggins' problem is he doesn't love basketball. Like, we we can say it. Like, he's proven it. He doesn't love basketball. He's immensely talented and athletic, and it's gotten him to be a solid NBA pro. And I'm not even going to say he doesn't work. It's just he doesn't enjoy it. Like, he's not going to give the extra work. That's what separates Amani is you already know that's what he's doing. And he's, for the most part, now he's doing it with his dad. And you never know when the dad gets away, does the kid still work. But from people in Michigan, they tell me the dad has to slow Amani down. And mm-hmm. so that tells me he's not buying into the hype. He's not content. He's not complacent. And he's not going to get that way. So I, I think that's what's important to, to look at is the difference here versus 
a guy like Wiggins who did get that hype because, like you said, he had he didn't have the middling physical tools. He had them all. And yep. in high school, he could get away with it, and he was just that darn good. But he doesn't love the game, and Amani loves the game. And when you put an elite-skilled kid with you know solid physical tools and an elite love of the game, that that's hard to miss on. So the other big aspect of this entire Imani Bates conversation is the looming uh, decision by the NBA and NBA Players Association to potentially allow high school kids into the NBA draft. Now, part of the reason that Imani said during this announcement on ESPN that, uh, you know, he's – how did he phrase it? He said something like, I don't know what the future holds, but I will be, uh, if I go to college, I'll be going to Michigan State. He said something like that, right? Mm-hmm. I think he said, I'm committed to Michigan State for now or something. Right. And the looming age uh, limit conversation is very important with Imani Bates. And I think it's why I can't really get wildly like enthusiastic for Michigan State fans, right? Like they just got the best kid in high school basketball and it's just like, man, we don't know if he's going to go to college yet. And I do think it's notable that within his interview with Jeff Borzello uh, over on ESPN.com, he said he doesn't really think the G League select route is going to be for him. Uh, And that's important because – the NBA and the NBPA negotiations for, in regard to the age limit, I mean, Adrian Wojnarowski has reported this. I've heard similar. The negotiations aren't going swimmingly, let's say. Well, it's because uh, no one – There is going to – Sam, we've seen right. it before. No one cares about it that much. They all just want to use it to get something else. Well, certainly the stakeholders don't. The NBA would actually prefer the extra year of evaluation time to make fewer mistakes. Yeah, and, Adam Silver, and, and Adam Silver, because he's – he views the players as the commodity, doesn't want the league. As near as I can tell from talking to basically everybody involved in terms of the, not every person, but every entity, is the only guy really wants it is Adam Silver. And I don't know if he's – and then you add in this pandemic. I mean, even even recently, Sam, I've had NBA scouts hitting me like, why are we spending millions of dollars on the select path? What sense does this make? Oh, Yeah. No, 100%. And then you uh, add in I, I had those conversations right when it happened. Yeah, and then you add in a pandemic, and it's like, really? We're spending money on this? So right. I, it's like, going to be very if, interesting. If like, costs, let's say it costs $10 million to get this G League Select program up off the ground, like in regard to getting these kids housing, getting them meals, getting them training, having to pay someone. Is it Brian Shaw? I think that's going to be running the show yeah, out there. Brian Shaw. Paying Jalen Green a salary, play, paying Dacian Nixon, Isaiah Todd, and Kai Sato. I think Kai Sato agreed to do that, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, paying those guys a salary. Like you're talking about a $10 million enterprise, and that's what, $300,000 for each owner? Mm-hmm. Like is each owner going to be willing to pay essentially the equivalent of a two-way contract uh, for this program that – doesn't really, in all likelihood, provide the best evaluation tool. Yeah, and their scouts and their GMs are telling them, no, you don't want to do that. So the right. owner's like, wait a minute, I got my personnel people telling me this is dumb and I'm cutting a quarter million dollar check to do it? Why am I doing this? Um, right, there's that. And there's the fact that, you know, on the player's side, you know, and this is part of it as well, I think that while the players are generally against college basketball, they're also not going to give up a piece of their pie to try to destroy college basketball or try to hinder college basketball in any regard. Uh, because at the end of the day, 
a lot of the people who run the NBA Players Association, basically everyone who runs the NBA Players Association has a significant voice in there as a veteran player. And, you know, vets aren't going to hurt older players at the expense of bringing in younger players like NBA teams would like to do. So, yeah, there's just not a whole lot of push in terms of whether or not this uh, age limit is going to change. Having said that, I think that the chances that Imani Bates ends up at Michigan State, I mean, everyone like that I've seen on my Twitter timeline is kind of laughing about it. Um, You know, and I've had internal like you know conversations with teams and you know with other media members and stuff and like people seem to be laughing about it i'm like i'm I'm not sitting here saying he's going to college i don't i don't know but there are a lot of variables here and i think that more of those variables end up with him spending a year at michigan state than what the current perception is if only because of the issues that we just outlined in regard to the negotiations with the NBA and NBPA. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a good shot. I mean, I would say at least 50-50. Now, what's interesting is, could that be in 2021? Could that be in 2022? Like, we we just don't know. There's so much to Amani's story that is yet to be written that it's just intriguing, and there's no good answer. And part of it, part of the reason he committed today is no one else was recruiting him, and it pissed him off. Yep. It pissed his dad off. Yep. And he's like, I'm the best player in the country. How come no one wants me? Screw this. I'm going to Michigan State. Um, well, it's, it's that. I was told the timing had to do with that, and it had to do with the fact that they are starting this prep school. Yeah. And, you know, they wanted some publicity for the prep school. Yeah. Right? And Michigan, um, the state of Michigan has absolutely archaic rules involving travel for their teams that really made it impossible on Amani to stay at a Michigan high school. Interesting. Yeah. Now he's still so that's, high that's why they're Michigan, doing this. But like in terms of Michigan high school athletic, so I mean the rules are absurd. Not only can you not travel like beyond like 450 miles or something, no one else can travel that far to see you. And let's say you're playing in like a multi-team event, no one else playing another team in the event can travel that far. So it's just archaic and it's dumb. And there's weird stuff with all-star games and it it's ridiculous. Yeah, so that part of it is interesting, too, and I wonder and have some concerns, obviously, about, like, can Imani get eligible within this prep school that just started in Michigan, right, to play college basketball? My guess Uh, is he's going to keep going to Ypsilanti High School or whatever it is, Ypsilanti Lincoln. uh That would be my guess is he goes to high school there and then they just play basketball somewhere else. That's good. That would would be my guess. I don't know that for a fact, though. Right. Um. But yeah, like th- this whole entire situation is very interesting. There are so many different variables that I think are worth discussing, and that's kind of why I wanted to have you on because I know that you know you deal with Midwest recruiting about as much as anyone, I would say, right? Be snow. Yeah, way too much. Way too much, man. Uh, is there anything else that you find interesting about this Imani Bates discussion before I let you go? Uh, I just I I do want to say like you see a lot of best since LeBron. People under, understand what that statement means. It can mean best since LeBron. It does not mean next LeBron. Those are two very different things. So I do think people need to realize that when they see that statement issued. Okay. It's funny. Like I, I've seen a couple people say, yeah, Monty Bates would go number one in this NBA draft class. And, you know, I agree with them. Like I agree with those people. Like they pro- he probably would. Right. If you're an NBA team, just given that Monty Bates is 16 and Cade Cunningham is – uh, almost 19. I think he turns 19 in September. Uh, would you rather draft Imani Bates or Cade Cunningham at number one? That's really interesting. Because he can't – Imani Bates can play I, in the NBA right now. Cade Cunningham no. can. Yes. 
I personally think I would take Cade Cunningham. I probably would, just because not so to say much that go wrong. not to say that yeah, not to say that like Imani isn't a like higher upside long term prospect, but I'm like not a hundred percent convinced that you know that, that those two aren't really close. Put it that way. I, I think that Cade Cunningham is exceptional in a way that uh, doesn't get discussed enough, uh, in part because people shifted the hype machine toward Imani. It's possible. I mean, it, it's a tough one. I, I could listen to the argument both ways, but I can't draft a 16-year-old in the NBA. This is just not happening. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Not Brian, one. Tell the people where they can tell the people where they can find your work coming up here. Uh, work at 247sports.com, and we have wall-to-wall coverage of this fine event. Yeah, between you, Evan, did you even enlist Gershon from out in my neck of the woods to write about this? Nah, we 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 keep him talking about dudes west of the Rockies. We can't we can't have him get too far east. It, it, nothing nothing good happens there. <laughs> Understood. Uh, hold on a minute here, guys. We'll be back in about ten seconds, and it'll be me and Seth Part now talking about uh, my top fifty prospects in the NBA currently, and a bunch of other evaluation stuff across the NBA. We're back, and Seth Part now is here. Seth, man, how you doing? I'm so glad that you're here to just roast. I want you to go in on my top 50 prospect ranking across the NBA. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, it's surprising because I know when we talk about prospects, we tend to come at them from very different viewpoints. Uh, you are... Uh, we've talked about this a lot. You are forever the optimist on everyone's going to be great, and I think everyone's going to suck. Um, and somehow, despite that that very different uh, uh, outlook from both of us, uh, I think your list is pretty solid. I am so sad now. I wanted you to destroy <laughs> it. So uh, to me, like the most important parts were getting uh, the top guys right. Like we're always going to fucking parse through the you know forty to. 25 range, right? Um, but getting the top ones right was important to me. And I think that Luka Doncic, Zion Williamson, and then the leap that uh, Jason Tatum took put him into that tier. Do you agree with Zion and Jason Tatum being in the top tier? Hmm. So this is the, the biggest difference between us is I think I weigh much more heavily kind of what guys already are in terms of, of what they'll become. Yeah. And on that standpoint, like – Luca is, you know, he's clearly, it's not really even close. At the same time, right. um, I agree least, with you on that. At, for what it's worth. at the same time, at least Zion, just like the, the, the level of production while having no idea what he's doing, especially defensively, and the the physical talent that is, you know, uh, a lot of times we talk about we, we throw elite athleticism around um, too frequently. Um, but it's not it's not a strong enough word for Zion. So, um, you know, you combine yeah, Zion, those things. Yeah, Zion has the best intersection of power and explosiveness in the NBA. And like, you know, a lot of draft analysts fell into the trap of, oh yeah, like isn't this just like bigger, more or uh, thicker, more explosive Julius Randle. And it's like, no, this guy is just unbelievable and is going to be able to like break through worlds and find gaps that Julius Randle just isn't explosive enough to find. It's not, I don't think it's the explosiveness so much as the shiftiness. Um, yeah, that's I agree the, with that the, too. It's, it's the balance. It's the, the, you know, the ability to, to spin in tight spaces and move. And 
Um, there was a, I think it was from the tournament. There was a play where he kind of stumbled and lost the ball and still managed to like execute like a crossover into a jump step. And it's just like, okay, a 200 and whatever pound guy, like every other, you know, freight train guy in the history of basketball falls on his face after they stumble. And he not only like recovers, but then makes two more moves after it. Yep. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. It's not just the, the kind of the combine measurables, but like the, the, the shiftiness and the fine motor skills that, that are pretty incredible. Yeah. Zion in his last 11 games prior to the shutdown was averaging 26 points a game on 60% from the field. Uh, look, you and I don't love counting stats, uh, and we certainly don't love small samples, uh, like 11 games. But, <laughs> but like, he is 19 years old, and he is wrecking the NBA. Yeah. I don't have it in front of me, but someone someone at the, the, some point this year did a stat where they did usage if you only counted, like, rim attempts and free throws, and he was just lapping the field. Right. Uh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Like, being able to generate – Shots in the half court at the basket is an incredible yeah. skill. Yes. Yeah. And he generates a ton of them. Yeah. Uh, I guess like the next question would be Jason Tatum. Like, do we be his Tatum's leap in your opinion, along with his defensive prowess that is already established? Cause he's to me, probably one of the best 10 to 15 health defenders in the NBA on the wing right now in the league um, on the ball. I think Jalen's probably a little bit better, uh, but Jason's still pretty good on the ball. Uh, like to me, like Jason should be getting, he should not be on the all defense team, but he should be getting a couple votes here and there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's, I think that, that if, if you're doing Zion and Luca as tier one, then Tatum to me is still kind of one B, like accepting of, of what you just said. But, but you think about it, um, to pick an example of teammates, I mean, you're talking about like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, right? Kawhi Leonard's a top five player in the league. Paul George is a stupendous all-star, all MV, right. all all NBA kind of range talent, but he's not Kawhi Leonard. And I think that relative to those other two, I think that that Tatum is just that little bit below. So he's not, um, you know, I. Am I going to be surprised if Luca or Zion is ever or or are in or around the MVP discussion on a yearly basis? No. If Tatum got to that level, would I be surprised? Yeah, it's not like out of the realm of possibility, but I think it's just it's it's less likely by a decent amount for him than the other two. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because a lot of what Jason does, in my opinion, translates into winning basketball. Uh, he is an exceptional defender. Not, I mean, we can parse words on exceptional, right? But, like, he is uh, a top 10 to 15 wing defender in the NBA right now. Uh, he is becoming an absurd pull-up threat. Like, over his final 23 games before the hiatus, Tatum took that leap. He averaged 28.7 rebounds and three assists. He uh, made 49 from the field and 45 from three on nearly eight three-point attempts a game. Uh, from mid-January going forward, Tatum made more pull-up threes than any player in the NBA not named James Harden or Damian Lillard. Uh, again, that is a small sample, but that is the kind of small sample that you hope beyond all measure that your 22-year-old shows as he is developing into a max-level player. Yeah, I mean, 
But that's the kind I'm, of guy that wins in the playoffs. Yeah, but I, but I'm, you know, you, I mean, you said it's small sample. I'm not, I'm not buying 45% three point shooting. No, I'm, I'm not can't. either. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I'm, but here's the thing, like you and I talk, uh, at least offline a lot about volume yes. being more important, honestly, if not just as important as percentage. The fact that Jason is taking this many pull up threes and making them, if he even makes them a 38% clip, it's an enormous win. Oh, oh, for sure. But I mean, it's again, it's the difference between, you know, difference between Dame Lillard and Steph Curry. If we're going to talk about from a pull-up three-point shooting, you know, again, one's an All NBA sure. level player, one is a Pantheon level Hall of Fame player, and and when you're talking at that very highest level, am I nitpicking? Absolutely. But the difference between the fifth and the fifteenth best player in the league, while kind of small from a skill set standpoint, is massive from a from a you know a championship equity standpoint. So yeah, well, I'm, yeah, that, that I'm, raises I'm picking the question. Nits, but go ahead. Where would you rank Jason Tatum right now across the NBA? Um I think that so this is we've we've kind of approached this a, a few different times with different groups this year and he's he's been solidly like right around you know high teens 20 like 20th yeah. best you know give or take. And there's, you know, there's some weirdness there with what do you do with like um, with Kevin Durant, for example. But still, like sure. he's right in that, um, right in that neighborhood. But but again, not really someone who is has has kind of scaled the the peaks of the mountain yet. And a lot of those guys aren't going anywhere. <laughs> so you know, he's like, yes, he's made a leap, but to reach that level, he has to make another leap yet. And I, I don't think that's not. I don't think I'm hating on him. By no, 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 you're not. Yeah. Like I think I would have him like right around fifteen. Yeah. Right no, now. I mean it's it's you know it, it's give or take. Like who would you rather have, right. Jason Tatum or Chris Middleton? Like that's a that's a it's a live question. I think. I mean, would you rather you know would you rather have Jason Tatum or Paul George? I think I'd based on track record, I think I'd probably rather have Paul George. Um, but again, it's it's in that in that vein certainly. The uh, I want to I want to bounce. Good question. On, like yeah, I think I would rather have Tatum than Middleton. Based off of the leap that Tatum took, uh, I would have said Middleton from October through mid-January. Like, it, it's it's tight, like, trying to figure out. Like, to me, the leap that Tatum took in regard to pull-up shooting takes him into a new stratosphere, almost, of player. Like, there is a very reasonable case to put Jason Tatum at the end of the top ten if you believe in his pull-up shooting, like, at a high level. Right. So now you're talking about would you rather have Jason Tatum or Nikola Jokic or Jason Tatum and Joel Embiid and that's I like I'm not I'm not ready to have that discussion yet. Yeah, I think I am to okay. be honest. That's fair enough. Um especially with it's hard with Embiid because uh it, it maybe the better way to put it is I am ready to have that discussion as it refers to uh affecting teams winning in the playoffs. See that I, when you talk about affecting winning in the playoffs, I feel like that's actually more advantageous to Embiid because, you know, with him it's always like the oh, he's going to play sixty some games a year and he might not get it every night and blah blah blah. But then like, uh, he's probably if you were going to rank just force rank players, he is the he is the lowest ranked player who would have significant best player on the floor no matter who the opponent is equity every night. Like Embiid can be the best player on the floor against any team in the NBA and you wouldn't bat an eye. And, and um, now obviously you know, that, can, that can happen on the, but you wouldn't. I'm be really close to being there with Jason. Okay. Fair enough. I'm not, but that's a, that's a reasonable, but you're the optimist and I'm the Russian judge. 
That's true. Yeah. I am the optimist on this one. Yeah. You wanted to bounce a question off me. So yeah, yeah, no. So the, actually, the, the the top group wasn't the the most interesting among the top was. I think I would have uh, Morant and Siakam ahead of of you've got uh, Trey Simmons and Trey. Uh, no, so I think Simmons is it. Simmons is probably in the right spot. Who do you have? Who do you have six? I had it pulled up in the night. Uh, I have, I believe, Brandon Ingram. At six. Yeah, no, I would have. I think I would have Siakam and Morant ahead of of Trey and and Ingram. Um, I, um, I I think it would probably at this point have have it uh, have it um, go Morant, Siakam, Trey, Ingram in that order. Um, but uh, I want to make hear your, your case on that. Um, I, I mean, I, I think um, first of all, the the, the I, you almost break it down like guy by guy. So you say like Morant versus Trey. Why would I rather have Morant? Uh, sure. I think I think Morant uh, to use a term uh, our friend Ben Taylor likes to to use is scalable. As the team gets better, um, I think even though Trey is a better shooter, I think Morant is more willing to play off the ball, more willing to be a cutter, uh, can hit an open shot. Um, so can I, has, count, can I counter that as you, as you kind of bring these arguments, or do you yeah. want me to wait? Well, no, I, well, I'll just to draw the comparison. Like, uh, like Trey has the skill set where he should be a good off-ball player. In two NBA, two NBA and one college season, he has shown little inclination to being very interested in playing off the ball. Right, but like... I mean, Atlanta had the worst backup point guard situation in the NBA this year. Uh, I don't trust Kevin Herter really initiating offense. I don't really trust, even though I'm high on Cam Reddish, I don't really trust Cam initiating offense. Like, I think the jury's out on whether or not Trey is going to be able to play off the ball. Whereas with Ja, Ja played with uh, Tyus Jones and DeAnthony Melton, both of whom are very, very good uh, at the very least high-level backups, if not low-level starting quality level players at the point guard position. So I think that, like, situationally, it's just been harder to evaluate that skill so far for Trey. Sure, though I think this is uh, this may be an aesthetic judgment or it may be a, 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 I don't know if you call it a mentality or a skill or just a style judgment, but Morant is a guy who really seems like he'll give the ball up early and get it back, and Trey sure. isn't. And that, I think that's reasonable, honestly. Yeah. Like Trey plays a more domineering style yeah. of basketball. Yeah, and I and and I and I think that now, if if uh, it's sort of an interesting kind of side argument is which one of the two is more likely to hold up physically? Um, that's or or less likely to not hold up physically because I think we both have some worries about both of them. Um, you know, Morant's so, style and 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 Trey is just so small. Well, I think that even a better question than that is, let's say neither of them hold up physically and both get hurt, which one provides more value long term? Like to me, if Morant goes down with like some sort of knee injury, like God forbid, right? Like nobody wants this, but um. If Morant goes down with some sort of injury, like it, it really puts his value into flux, I think. Trey relies a lot more on deception and relies a lot more on like shooting skill to where I think that his game is going to be just a little bit more injury-proof almost. That could be. Although, I mean, at, at that point, if we're talking – like either one of them – If we're talking injury, like both these yeah, guys are fucked anyway. Yeah, right? yeah, both of them drop out of this discussion anyway. Um, right. You know, with that. Um, and but then to me, the difference is shooting, though. Like, 
I, I have real worries about John Morant being a significant pull-up shooter at some point. Both of them, uh, they honestly, the two of them might have the best floater games in the entire NBA. Uh, they both already have that locked down, Trey especially. I mean, Trey's floater is, you know, one of the best weapons in, you know, floater weapons in NBA history, I think. Uh, Jai is second behind him in that regard. So they do have an in-between game, but you need to be able to do more in the in-between area in the playoffs than just get the floaters. And I think I trust Trey to do that, uh, to be able to knock down that shot in the in-between area, to be able to knock down shots from, you know, 30 feet if you have to, because that's what's open in the NBA uh, playoffs. With Morant, I don't think he's ready for that yet, even though his game, uh, I do agree with you, does translate a little bit better toward playing with other people. Yeah, I, I am not. I think that having that that pull-up game is uh, is certainly a, a bonus. I, I don't think it's, I still don't think it's a complete requirement yet. Uh, that may be wrong, but I think that teams have gotten smarter. You, you've We've kind of seen it with, uh, you know, the teams playing like the double under pick and roll coverage. More and more teams are kind of using the the, the kind of the Gortat rescreen, um, and yep. and uh, to to allow and a player like Morant, you give him, you know, you basically put a pulling guard in front of him and give him a runway to the basket. Like, okay, um, so I, I don't, mean, they essentially do that with Jonas, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, I I. Uh, I don't think that that you know the fact that he is not a high volume pull up three point shooter is in any way fatal to him because I think he is I think he is good a good enough shooter that that you don't just wave at him like you have well, to. and he he might be Derek Rose in regard to just generating shots at the rim too yeah once he's a little bit stronger yeah uh, and then moving to the to the you know the wing position I mean I think that sure. the the gap between Siakam and Ingram is so massive defensively. That, that I agree with, honestly. Siakam's a better player right now than Brandon Ingram. Yeah, um, and you know, in, um, and this is the first year, you know, I got I got myself in some hot water earlier this year by suggesting that uh, Ingram had was not a very productive NBA player for his first three years, and I stand by that. So this is the kind of the first year he is he has been a good NBA player, and he was really good, but he was also in a situation where he was. Um, and I would have liked and and looking forward to seeing maybe a little bit more time where now that he has to share a little bit of the of the load with Zion con- continuously, whether he was just like uh, because they were in such a they were kind of in such a struggle bus territory that that he got to to show out more on a team that was struggling. Um, whether he can translate that again to a a better balanced environment with other really good players, um, and admitting that like the shooting and playmaking have been were very good this year, just um, how that fits with better players and what his position is defensively. Um, you know, we, I, I hinted at Zion's struggles there. Um, you know, it, Zion can't shoot yet, so you it's tough to find a five to play with them. Uh, well, so I, think play I think Zion's going to be the five. Yeah, but the, so then you play them at the four and the five, and that's awful defensively. <laughs> and like uh, the, right now, but they're also yeah. twenty-two, and yeah. you know Zion has shown instincts defensively. Uh, certainly at Duke, like he was actually a pretty good defender at Duke, just in terms of like being all over the place. And I mean, I think like, I think he's going to. It's going to be hard for him to be a hugely negative defender just by virtue of his physical skills. But in terms of his and like the fear that he instills in opponents, yeah. just driving to the rim. But in, but in terms of that was one of the things I was like very disappointed about for him over the time he played was his 
whether it was a conditioning issue, whether it was an awareness issue, what have you, like he's someone who should be a excellent, uh, you know, weak side defender at the rim, and it just wasn't there. Can I just make a case that it's really fucking hard to enter the NBA like in mid January? Oh yeah, uh, no, I, when your team is like already established uh, and you're trying to figure out where you need to be in terms of rotations, while also Honestly, if, let's just be real about it. He was probably 15 pounds overweight yeah. when he came back, right? It, 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 it's not – I mean, it's not the fact that he was slow or late a lot. It's that he was looking the wrong place and not moving. Right. That, those, were, those are the more concerning ones. Um, and again Let, – Let's you, talk you, about Brandon though because yeah. I, I think that you're right. He's really bad on defense. Uh, he's just not very good. He's also 6'10", 6'9" somewhere in that vicinity with like a seven foot three wingspan. I just don't think that someone that's that big and long, once you get him in the playoffs and as his body continues to mature, which, I mean, we've already seen growth there. Oh, he's, he's, he's definitely, I think that was a big, a big part of his improvement this year is he was right. still, he's, he is definitely, he might not be a lot bigger, but he is quite clearly sturdier than he was right. you know, a couple he of years. He can, like, embrace contact on his hip, yeah. like, in pick and roll, yeah. and then, like, you know, have that guy bounce off of him, take a step back and pull up, right? Like, it's no longer that that guy's knocking him off his axis, right? Yeah. Um, I, I get your concerns with him instinctually defensively. I just think it's really hard to be that big that long and to have, like, the level of athleticism that he does and be – a real negative defensively because you can hide that guy. And and like, he might not be an impact player defensively, but I think that it's easy enough to put him on the spacing four or when he's 25 years old, put him on the, you know, potentially stretch five given where the league is going to be in three years and let him just kind of handle those guys. Like, I I don't think he's going to be a total negative defender long-term. That may be, but then you compare him to. I mean, would you uh, would you say that Siakam is a uh, is is in or around an all and an all defense level player? Maybe maybe now that his offensive load is higher, maybe 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 a touch below that now, but still. Yeah, I, I would like, say step below, but yeah, he's. I mean, he's a very real plus defender and versus like a very versatile defender on ball, off ball, help passing lanes. Like re, can right. reach out and grab and go can do a lot of you know a lot of very neat stuff and and it, that's helped by the fact that he plays for perhaps the most creative coach in the league who is gonna you know figure right. out how to move him around and use him in 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 as many different ways to showcase that versatility as as he would in any system in the league. Right, and that I do agree with. I think that. You know, not to say that Alvin Gentry's bad coach. I think he's very good, and I think that he played a significant role in Ingram actualizing who he was. I do think Ingram started to show some flashes late in his uh, what third season with the Lakers. Like he was really good in that last like twenty game stretch with the Lakers. Um, in the light flashed on, but you know Siakam does get the Nick Nurse advantage. I think uh, he is put into exceptional positions to succeed. Having said that. I think that this more comes down to an upside argument with like, I think Brandon's offensive upside is like NBA scoring champion. Like if if you told me he led the league in scoring at some point and averaged like 31 a night, uh, maybe that won't happen because Drew holiday exists and Zion exists and he might not get that usage. But like, if you 
told me that happened, I I wouldn't be stunned at all. Like I, I really think that Brand, maybe Brandon is like this generation's Carmelo Anthony, right? Like that could be an outcome. Uh, and you know, I mean that in the negative way, even though Carmelo's had like an exceptional, unbelievable career. But man, a guy that's that big, that long, can get that many shots and can knock them down efficiently from all three levels. It, it's hard for me to not be excited about that guy at 22. No, that's fair. Um, I, again, it's these things are all uh, just by expressing a preference for a different player. It's like you don't think the other guy's good. I do think the other guy's good. I no, I know. Yeah, but that, that actually, I, I'm glad you you went to the to the uh, um, the upside uh, point because I think we, uh, sort of the meta discussion about this is I was trying to figure out by looking at your your rankings. You know, when we're talking about prospects, you can you can balance tools versus skills. You can balance upside versus achievement, and and there's all these different ways you can look at it. And I was trying to figure out like what your sort of heuristic was in kind of balancing these things because at, at times it seems like you were rewarding achievement, and at times you were, I think this guy has great upside, and it's not yeah. you have to no like Kobe system. White and Cam Reddish are two great yeah. examples of that, right? Yeah, like they're probably the two examples on this thing. Right, um, and Kobe you know, White, the, like like Duncan Robinson, you have down in the forties, and Duncan Robinson may have been the best shooter in the NBA this year. Um, now that makes him a specialist, but that also makes him someone who's gonna who's going to play in the league and be a rotation player for decent teams for a decade, if if that level of of, of shooting skill and versatility continues. Yeah, and, I was gonna say like part of it with Duncan is too like Duncan is gonna turn twenty seven, I think, later this year. Yeah. Uh, probably not going to have as long like left in his career. Uh, And then additionally, while I agree with you, he's the best, he was the best shooter in the NBA this year. And he was the best shooter in the G league last year. Like it's not just a one game sample with Duncan necessarily. uh, If you believe in the G league shooting sample, which I think you should just given how exceptional he was like, this is, it's still like a relatively small sample of him being this good. You know what I mean? Of him being like, holy shit, this guy is one of the five best shooters alive. Right. Uh, because if he falls off to, okay, he's the 15th best shooter by the time he's 29 years old, then he's probably too high on this list. You know what I mean? It could be. It could be. But it, but regardless but no, of your, your point is interesting. Yeah. Because I, I just, I just kind of want to explore that with you a little bit about, like, how do you, like, like it's interesting you were talking about you know Brandon Ingram's defensive pot- potential and his size and athleticism and I'm, right. and then okay where is it uh, and I don't mean that I'm not I don't mean that flippantly like no no we no we talk no. about we talk about like the guy's tools and athleticism and blah 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 well if he's doing something that matters it should show up somewhere where we can observe and measure it and and I think that that's a way in general that kind of talent evaluators get kind of seduced by, uh, you know, the clip scouting method, uh, especially defensively, is very dangerous because I did this once versus a guy does this. Yeah, and I think that it's a really good point to bring up, and I think it's a really complicated discussion point to apply to something like this because, as we know, for instance – Cam Reddish, right? Cam Reddish was a disaster for the first. Like, I think Cam Reddish is like the perfect cipher for all of this, basically. Uh, Cam Reddish was a disaster for the first 30 games this year. Like, he looked terrible. We can just be real about it. And then by the time the calendar flipped to 2020, he was the third best rookie in the league this year, probably. So how do you adjust that? How do you 
how do you figure that out? You kind of have to go through the scouting just of what changed with Cam Reddish. For me, what I saw was Cam Reddish really slowed down when attacking closeouts and became more patient. He started to figure out how to use his body as opposed to uh, trying to explode through people like he could in high school. Uh, he started to uh, just look a bit more patient and composed and didn't look like he was shitting his pants every time he got the ball. Uh, that stuff matters. And then, oh, on top of it with Cam, he became an actual plus defender as a rookie. Like, he wasn't just, like, good for a rookie defender. He was, like, an above-average defender uh, in the NBA this season. And that goes back to even his time while he was struggling offensively. So why do I bring all of this up? It's because finding these two-way wings or even the potential for someone to be a player who can knock down threes, attack closeouts, uh, you know, run pick and rolls occasionally, and be a plus defender, that's the ball game. That's what everyone's looking for right now. So that guy is going to have more inherent value if he hits than someone like uh, Brandon Clark, who was ostensibly a better basketball player this year than Cam Reddish was. Ostensibly, no. Like he, he was a better basketball player this year. Let's not you – know, no, no, we don't need to sugarcoat it. Yeah. yeah. He was a better basketball player this year. Yeah. Full stop. Um, no, I think that's – I think that all of that's a reasonable point. I do think, though, that – first of all, this is something that I think that I've I've kind of gone back and looked at Reddish a lot more kind of as a – uh, both as a prospect and a player, um, in, in we actually uh, published our our uh, at the Athletic our, our Hawks kind of off season preview today, and I talk about this a little there. Uh, you go back and look, and he was actually a pretty high level defensive prospect coming out of Duke. So that part about him being a a a, a good, especially for a rookie defender. That part isn't surprising, and him being able to build on what is already his strength is yep. sure. Um, now, when you start talking about, you know, if he hits on adding pick and roll ability, something that we just haven't seen at all, uh, like, and I mean at all. And I don't know that I agree with you that we haven't seen it at all because he actually did run like a pretty real number of pick and rolls this year. He wasn't like wildly efficient at it. Don't no, I mean, yeah, no, it's something he like. He, I'm not just talking about him like having the ball and a guy sets the screen, and he dribbles over the top and passes like that's, but a guy being an effective operator in the pick and roll. I don't think we have much history of him as a player doing that. And you, you mentioned like getting back to high school, like, you know, him just like exploding through people. Like it, he never has, he never developed that kind of craft because he never had to. And so right. now we're, we're asking that to happen on the fly. And I don't know how fair that is in terms of, of projecting a guy. But, but here's kind of what I'm saying, though. Like, it's it's already happening. Like, if you go back and, like, watch his last 20 games, there's a very real difference in the way that he goes about attacking uh, defenders. Very real difference in the way that he goes about using his frame to shield them from the ball and shield them from his potential shooting pocket uh, or from his potential ability to make a live dribble pass. There's he he's he is already figuring it out. Like it's not like he needs to. It's not like the flash hasn't been shown and like you're projecting upon someone what you want them to be. It's like well he showed these flashes from January through the beginning of March. Now how much of that is the Hawks were out of contention and just kind of let them rock versus an actual translatable skill? I think that's tough. Like I actually think that that part of the equation is really really tough to gauge. 
Yeah, that's and and I tend to be more of a, a more of a skeptic on a guy. Uh, you know, suddenly it happens, but I think it happens much less frequently than than uh, optimists such as yourself like to, <laughs> to think. So, but that's I think that again that gets that that gets back to you know how you how you uh, reward kind of achievement versus you know perceived potential. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that, that was just kind of my, my, my overarching question about that. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a good answer because I think that, um, I think we both agree that we're really, when we're talking about prospects, we're we're really aiming for the right tail. We're really aiming for like, you know, what the guy's 90th percentile outcome. And that's really what you want to, at least from a from a, a draft standpoint, from a we have a rebuilding team. What are we looking for? You want that guy who, if he hits, it's a you know, it's, you're not aiming for just a guy. You're aiming for uh, an all star plus and identifying kind of who has that as a part of their reasonable outcome. That that's a that's a uh, that's always a tough one. Yeah, it is. It's a really, really difficult question. It's a really, really difficult concept to try and uh, fathom. And then additionally, you throw in the wrench of what are what happens if this guy does hit? Because Mitchell Robinson hitting is, okay, you have this guy who's going to be a really good rim protector who is probably one of the three best rim runners in the NBA. But what is that upside? Is it like more explosive Clint Capella? Right. What is that upside in, in 2020? If we're talking... Right. Oh, we're talking no. What, what is that upside in 2025? Yeah, right, right. Even? Yeah. But if we're talking in 2008, then that's like a, you know, it's, well, that's that's Dwight Howard, who's an MVP level player, right? Uh, and I, I, I don't even, th- I don't think peak Dwight Howard would be, you know, you, you look at, 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 I think Rudy Gobert is, is a tough example because I think he's, his sort of lack of creative skills offensively has led him to be underrated overall as a, as a, as an impactful player. But that's still, that's a, that's a, first of all, that's the, you know, the best defender in the NBA and, right. you know, and he struggles to get involved in, you know, top 10, 15 pl- player discussions. I'd have him there, but I know I'm in the minority. Yeah. I can't quite get him there because he's your hater. in well, he struggled enough in the playoffs. Well, where, um, okay, but this I is bouncing that. off topic, but I think that he he gets blamed for the his team his team's otherwise lack of solid offensive options and creativity, and because he is the best player, it it redounds on him somehow. Even though they've basically been fine defensively in the playoffs, they just haven't been able to you know take. Well, to me, it's out. more how he limits their offense in the playoffs. Like defensively, I agree with you. Like I don't, I don't think it's like I know that people pull the clips of like the Rockets stringing him out in the pick and roll, and you know him guarding in space and making it look bad. Like to me, it's more. Maybe this is part roster construction on the Jazz's part, but like to me, it's more just uh, it's hard for them to generate high level offense yeah. in part because he's on the floor. I, mm, I see. I think that the like the the causality there is like it, wait, it's 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 his fault that their second best playmaker is Joe Ingles. Well, but here's here's the causality though. Guys that can't shoot now across any position foster less roster flexibility. That's true. In general. Um, it, if, it's not necessarily Rudy Gobert's fault that they struggle, but he's a piece of why. 
you know. If you can't figure it out for the best defensive player in the league, though, you know, so it's, again. Sure, and by the way, like, I think Utah tried to yeah. this year. And, and, like, Mike Conley, you know, got hurt, and, you know, we have to hope that Mike isn't a little yeah. bit washed. But, uh, you know, I, I think that they were on the right track in terms of how to build around that guy. So, I, like, speaking of the Jazz, there's another kind of interesting group of players that I think – like you know, when you put, when you line the list up, it kind of it, it all makes sense, but it's just surprising to see, like you know, Donovan Mitchell at at uh, at, at at nine, Bam Adebayo ten, Shea yep. uh, Gilgeous Alexander eleven, Jaron Jackson twelve, Jalen Brown that that seems low. Like it's a that, murderer's row of players. Yeah, that seems you know I some I like some of them better than others, but that's still like if you if you said told someone that Donovan Mitchell was the ninth best like rookie scale prospect in the league right now, they'd look at you like you're out of your mind. So but then that. you, but then you list it out yeah. and it's like, well, there's no way you can put any of the top four guys, I think, uh, ahead of Donovan, right? Like you just can't, or you can't put them behind Donovan. You can't put any of Luca, Zion, Tatum, Simmons below him. If you want to make a case that you think Trey young is never going to get to an adequate level defensively. I get that. But to me, I would rather have Trey's playmaking and passing ability uh, and his elite level just offensive creation than what Donovan can do on the defensive end. And by the way, like Donovan's advanced numbers defensively, like they aren't high level, you know. Um, Brandon, I would rather just have the size as a shot creator than have a guy who's six foot three as my shot creator, right? Like I think they're both actually pretty equal offensively now in terms of being shot generators for themselves. And to be honest, Brandon brings the same passing ability that Donovan does. It's a, I, I don't, it's hard to disagree with you than that when you lay it out like that. Although there, the one, one, one guy that I do think you have shorted uh, in, in this, like who's the next elite creator convo is De'Aaron Fox. Um, I think that, that like, I, I, I kind of think that, so yeah, let's, let's talk about De'Aaron. Cause I think De'Aaron's interesting. No, I struggled I, with where to place him a lot, to be honest. Well, I think that, that, I think that's a reasonable kind of quartet of players to kind of discuss together when, in, yeah. Mor- in Morant, Mitchell, Fox and, and Trey, I think that that's, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's one more. Who's the other one? Durant, Mitchell, Fox, Trey, and Shea. Uh, yeah, and it, like I, I guess Shea is, is more of a I, – I, 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 maybe I'm wrong in this, but Shea seems like he's more of a combo, especially like maybe that's because he's like Chris Paul this year and, and that's right. much, that, that's pushed him much more into kind of a pure scoring role. But honestly, uh, Donovan's also a combo. So yeah, but Donovan's gonna... a combo, but he's but because of the the Jazz roster, he's been he's been sort of designated as as the the on ball guy. Right, but they also don't want him to be that. Hence the trade for right. Mike Conley last summer. Yeah, right. So yeah. like yeah, like I think that you're right though that all five of those guys are really tricky to parse through. Like if you the guy that I really looked at and like I don't want to say that I would change it because I don't think I would, but the guy that could make me look really bad is Shea. I think like. Shea is already a good defender who is already uh, like an exceptional offensive creator who can pass it a little bit, who rebounds, who is also efficient in terms of decision-making and plays well with others. Like I I think Shea could make me look really, really bad out, honestly. I mean, I think he is, despite OKC having a nice, a really nice year this year, I think he was, he's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, I can definitely see why you would say that. Uh, It's, He's out of sight, out of mind, even within how people discuss Oklahoma City because of Chris Paul. Yeah, that's true. 
Um, the, the interesting one that I also struggled with was like, I think Jalen could make me look bad as well. Like, I think Jalen was a monster this year. I think Jalen was so good this year. Um, having him at 13, like, I think that guy's going to be like a five or six time all-star and, you know, be a piece of a title winning team, not the best player on a title team, but like a really good team, uh, a really good player that could win a title is like the second best guy on a title team. Um, placing Jaron Jackson and DeAndre Ayton was really hard for me because DeAndre, like, I can't believe I'm going to say this. DeAndre was a better defender than Jaron Jackson this year. DeAndre was a, go ahead. I said, ouch. (laughs) He, well, but DeAndre was actually during his time, he was a plus defender this year. Uh, I would even go that far. I wouldn't say that, like, if you look at the numbers, uh, he contested 19 and a half shots per game, which was second to Rudy Gobert. And on those shots, opponents made 6.3% fewer of them than their league average, which is fourth best in the NBA. Like, the numbers on DeAndre say he was one of the best defenders in the NBA this year. I would not go anywhere near there in terms of thinking that's true. But I do think he was a plus defender this year in the way that he made leaps rotationally, in the way that he can actually guard a little bit away from the basket. And he made a real leap as a rim protector when he struggled with that in his rookie year. I'll agree that he made a leap. I'm not going to come all the way to plus, I don't think. Um, yeah. Um, but if you're doing like, here's the thing though, with DeAndre, you're talking, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just considering like, you know, plus like, especially relative to like a, like starting center. Is he, he, is he above me? Probably above median, maybe right or thereabouts. So yeah, that, I mean, if you think he's a plus defender and he averaged, uh, I believe it was like 19 and 12 this year. At 21, like that guy is more upside than I think people are talking about. I think there's a there's a there's a style there's a stylistic problem where his offensive game is a little too Nick Vucevic for me. Yes, I agree with that. I think that's totally reasonable. Um, but like with Jaron, Jaron fits everywhere offensively, yes. right? Yeah. And that's why I rank Jaron ahead of him, despite the fact that you look at the counting numbers, DeAndre was better. I think no, DeAndre I think, was I think better Jaren defensively is, this year. I like think it's Jaren, just easier to fit Jaron. Yeah. Jaron might be the perfect example of of kind of the well look at all these tools and then but then he just he, he can't stop fouling um, defensively and and so again he ha- he has these tools and he, and he blocks some shots and but the, how much does he actually help the defense if he's if he's getting beat frequently enough and out of position frequently enough where he has this insane foul rate? What uh we have to get out of here within the next yeah. five minutes so I just want to. Toss you, is there someone that is not on here that you think needs to be on here? Um, I, the guy who you had lower than, uh, especially when you're talking about the kind of the uh, guy with three and D potential is Mikhail Bridges. Yeah, Mikhail, honestly, that's one I might want to get back. Like I, I might add Mikhail Bridges. Uh, he was number 51 for what it's worth. Um, he probably could be considerably higher he like would you take miles or mikhail bridges right now oh mikhail like no question the more yeah the more i watched the two the more i wondered 
Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I. I was I. I really liked Miles coming out of of college and uh, kind of some of the the perimeter skills that that I thought he showed at Michigan State, both like watching and from a new, from a statistical standpoint, just haven't. And, and for a team that is desperately had desperately could have used some you know playmaking and and face up game, he just he just hasn't done in really any of it as an NBA player. Uh, and so then you have the you know the the kind of the ludicrous length of of Mikhail and, and you know, yeah. kind of his potential as a shooter and uh, uh, that becomes a pretty – now, I don't think that – I don't know if there's a lot of star upside for, for Mikhail, but I just in terms of there's talking not, about like that, that sort of elite Danny Greenish role player kind of yeah. thing. But that, again, I'm not, not saying that's what he'll be, but that's like – that's in play. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um Mikhail, like, I mean, I had Mikhail at 51, so, like, obviously, like, Mikhail is the guy that was closest to not making this that, you know, didn't make it. But I think I probably should have ranked Mikhail, to be honest. Like, if we're, if we're just, like, if there's one thing that I, or one guy I look at and I'm like, all right, I probably fucked that up, I probably fucked up not ranking Mikhail. Well, I'm glad we've, uh, we, we've established that so that your, your bases are covered when he, uh, when he blows up in, in two years. Yeah, this is smart. See, this is yeah. this is what it's all about. Seth, tell the people what's going on. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what you've got coming up. So we're working through our uh, series where Sam is giving uh, uh, Danny LaRue, uh, uh, Dave DeFore, and I an assist on our, our kind of off-season previews and look-aheads of the Delete Eight, the eight teams that have not been invited to the Orlando bubble. And uh, we posted the Hawks today. We've already been through the Warriors, Knicks, Bulls, and Hornets, doing the Cavs later this week, and then finishing up with the Timberwolves and Pistons uh, next week. And I can't believe I got through all eight of those without having to stop and think. Uh, But find those on The Athletic. Uh, Follow me on Twitter, at Seth Partnow. And uh, thanks for having me. Seth, of course, man. Go to The Athletic. Keep us both employed over there. That'd be great. Uh, I published all of the rest of my rookie scale rankings stuff last week. Deep dives into Sacramento, Dallas, Atlanta, Memphis, Boston, and New Orleans. Uh, I published updated organizational rankings within each team in addition to team-by-team rankings where teams like Miami and Oklahoma City moved up the rankings uh, and Charlotte throughout the course of the year due to their players really uh, stepping up. And then I also published my top 50 prospects, which I think is where Seth and I discussed most of our uh podcast today so go subscribe go read all of that we have a 30-day trial right now so please go subscribe and do that whole thing uh later this week i might have a couple things coming Uh, i might have one other thing on atlanta i think i'm going to start something else up uh this week but until next time we'll talk soon bye